Good evening, dummies. Episode 198, Gettysburg in the house. I finally got to go to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I'm really super excited about that. That was awesome. God, overwhelming. Overwhelming for sure. My mom was a huge Civil War buff. As much as my uncle was a Kennedy buff, my my mother was a Civil War buff, which means I had to be a Civil War buff. And I just have studied it immensely and and being there was cathartic palpable feelings man just emotions from both sides from all sides really it wasn't just the blue and the gray from the african-american perspective to the, the the people the townsfolk incredible just the amount of devastation that took place in the civil war and killing our brothers fathers and sons and uncles with malice in our hearts is incredibly disturbing but i learned a lot and a lot that i had forgotten and it was an amazing experience folks what are we doing tonight well we're going to go into a few things gettysburg and the state of our union call it a gettysburg address from somebody a lot less than Abe Lincoln. I've got the new Abe Lincoln statue over my shoulder right here. If you can see it behind the blue light, it's awesome. It's in my photo of my cover. So Honest Abe is the new mascot. The Spartan helmet is second mascot, but I couldn't fit Abe into the Spartan helmet. We're going to go over the State of the Union. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this giant movement to absolve history from its whiteness and institute blackness, which honestly... I think it's a very delicate subject that we are not going to be very delicate with. I'm going to trample on both sides as hard as I can because I believe that this is not the answer. Having a revisionist whitewashing or blackwashing of history will not solve our problems. I think it will create more animosity and simply role reverse the current stances. We're going to talk about that tonight. Also, you're racist. I know you are, but what am I? Listen, I am so tired of Republicans wearing the mantra of being the party of the KKK, Jim Crow laws, the three-fifths compromise, the South, the old Rebs, racism, red tide, being being absolutely against civil rights, not being the party of abolitionists. Folks, we're going to go into it tonight. I don't think that Democrats should be hung with that rope ever. The people who did those things aren't even alive today. And the ones that are are immaterial. But stop hanging around the necks of Republicans because we're sick and tired of it. Because the truth is, all you got to do is go to Gettysburg. Go listen to the history. Go read the letters. Go listen to Abraham Lincoln. I read a letter written by the hands of Abraham Lincoln talking about the Republican Party. Talking about the abolitionists and a new vision for the future. The history is there. You just have to read it. I'm going to try to bring it to you tonight. And oh, say can you please sit down and shut up. The National Anthem, why it is not racist. Why it absolutely brings us together. That it is tied together more than the fabric of the flag itself. And why it represents every person. And that it is most assuredly not racist. We have a lot to cover. I have a lot to do. And I will see if I can get it all done in one shot. But first, what did Zeus pick as Mount Olympus's National Anthem? That's easy. Greased lightning. Re- 
recorded from an undisclosed location. Always honest, always direct. So sit back, relax. Don't unfriend me starts right now. Welcome, Dumb Nations. Like I said to 198 Dumb Nations, you're not plural. It's a Dumb Nation. Jeez, I'm already starting off strong. 198. It's going to be a big show. It's going to be a fun show. My name is Matthew Spear. I am your host of Don't Unfriend Me. And what do we do here at Don't Friend Me? Well, we talk all about current events. We talk about topics that make people a little bit uncomfortable. But the whole point is you can love me, you can hate me, you can agree or disagree. Just don't unfriend me. Where can you find me? Well, you can find me on my social media sites. At Don't Unfriend Me host on Facebook and Anchor, which has all my podcasts, or at Don't Unfriend Me at Instagram and YouTube. Head on over to both of those sites, please, and give me a like, share, and subscribe. You can do that on YouTube right here on the red envelope, or you can hit like and follow on Facebook. Lastly, if you're not a social media giant, you cannot go to the Veteran Crisis Hotline yet, but someday you will after this episode. Don'tunfriendme.com. You can visit there. You can find my podcast, my videos, and everything else. And I wasn't saying that you're going to have to visit the veteran crisis hotline. It was just an accidental pop-up. And I realized that that's a slip. If you don't have to call them folks, don't the lines are busy enough with 22 veterans committing suicide a day. We'll talk a little bit about veteran crisis, veteran crisis hotline at the end of the show. But first let's get into the actual show itself. Gettysburg and the state of our union. I had a post that I did over the weekend, started on Friday. And this is the photograph. And 15 million people were impacted by this post. 590,000 people commented, 20,000 comments and 19,000 comments in total, and 130,000 shares. That was as of just about 10 minutes ago. I promise you all those numbers have gone up. We're well over 600,000 now. Why is this important? Well, this wasn't a controversial post. It was actually fairly simple. It was a man with a pole vault, long pole, and was running down ready to run a trial of his jump when the national anthem played. Now, he's a military veteran, army vet. He simply stood at attention and looked for the flag, continued to look for the flag, was out of breath because he was running full speed. People said he didn't know the words of the national anthem. It's ridiculous. And he proceeded to stand at attention when he faced the music. The speakers were all the way around. He got a little bit lost, and he kept looking and looking and looking, and finally, for what he think he found or that, Everyone was facing the same way. He stood at attention and waited for the national anthem to end. What is wrong with that? And if you don't like it, why couldn't you just click through? Isn't that what we say? If you don't like C. Colin Kaepernick taking any, why don't you just not say anything and just go by? Well, why couldn't you go by when I simply just said some Americans still find this to be important? It's true. Some don't. I mean, are you denying? I mean, do we have to argue with everything? Are you going to say that a lot of people actually disagree with standing for the national anthem and don't agree with the national anthem says? Okay, then it's true. Then why are you disagreeing with that when you're those people? Why can't you click on by? Well, because you care and you're invested and it's important to you. Well, so is the national anthem to us. And when you strip away all the nuance, really, we're arguing for things we believe in, whether you believe in statues or don't, whether you want the flag up or down whether abortion is a right for everybody or is abhorrent and it's going to get you sent to hell, whatever it is, folks, it's still what we believe. And that's what makes this so muddy. This is what murkies the water. 
The Star Spangled Banner itself is notoriously difficult to sing, but when it's done right, you get chills. It's not a Roseanne Barr moment, but Whitney Houston absolutely crushed it. It's amazing. Hendrix did an amazing rendition on the guitar. It still gives me goosebumps today. As with just about everything else in America, though, statues, old movies, math, our national anthem, it stands endangered by this woke mob. And I'm not saying the woke mob is negative. Remember, you call yourself woke. You're most assuredly a mob. When you force your beliefs on other people through violence and through terror, it's a mob. No, not everybody. There are peaceful protesters, but that's not the narrative, is it? Everyone thinks that who voted for Donald Trump are racist, and everybody thinks anyone who voted for Biden is part of BLM. Isn't that insane when literally that only makes up about 4% of both sides? What the British couldn't do to old glory in that perilous night, grievance mongers are trying to do it now by claiming that they're offended by the words that no one has ever heard. The perilous and omnipresent by never being present, third verse. You might be asking yourself the third verse. There's a third verse to the national anthem. I thought there was only one. Well, that third verse is the one that is never played anyway. It's the one that no one ever sings. It's the one I've never heard in my entire life sung. Yeah, people are upset about that one. It's the part of the anthem that has effectively been cut out of the song. And it's the reason we can't abide any part of it anymore. Historians say the third verse, with its reference to the hireling and the slave, is meant to disparage the victims of enslavement. Enslavement, And Francis Scott Key himself owned slaves at the time he wrote the song in 1814, as most did. But this, all, this is all just trivia if no one is actually singing the verse anymore. And they aren't. Nobody even sings the second verse on the shores dimly seen through the mist of the deep. The third verse is a dead letter. It's like opposing the U.S. Constitution because it used to fail to guarantee voting rights for women, or indeed hating the United States because it used to accept slavery. Leftist activists have gone so wacky that they now sound like the prognosticator, lining the streets, warning of infections, even though antibiotics have already been invented then arguing that some bacteria in your body is good, so we should refrain from curing the infection. It is a vicious cycle with no end. We'll all be better off if we take an occasional break from being outraged or fake outraged. As sung today, the Star Spangled Banner doesn't celebrate slavery or even refer to it. We kept those parts out. We kept the ones that worked and cut out the rest. When I was going through the site today. I saw a lady and her name was Andrea and it was spelled A-U-N-D-R-E-A. Yes, I almost didn't reply to her flippant and passive aggressive text because the way she spelled her name already drove me crazy. But she wrote something that I thought was interesting. I may not have agreed with it, but I at least thought it was interesting. It says, did you know that the Pledge of Allegiance was made up so that a magazine could sell more American flags to schools. Actually, I did know that. And it's an interesting point, although passive-aggressive. What is she trying to say? That it doesn't hold value simply because it was used as a marketing ploy? Well, look at Coca-Cola. Look at apple pie. Do those not resemble America? Do those not have more meaning, an ancillary benefit, than their intended meaning to be simply a drink 
and a liquid libation and a hearty snack? No. They're important to America. The definition has changed with the times and surpassed the meaning that it originally had. Is it possible that the pledge could do the same? So my argument to her was good call. Did you also know that when Fleming was studying Staphylococcus, a single paniculum mold spore found its way into his experiment? This little form of serendipity wound up changing the entire world with the discovery of penicillin. Amazing how the intended outcome of one action can have unintended consequences that benefit the greater good. Not sure if you were intentionally downplaying the importance of the pledge or not. I just figured one good obscure reference deserves another. Be good. I'm sure I butchered the word. Penicillium. Pen- Did I say paniculum, folks? You make sure you write down below what an idiot I am. I would appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, I'm not perfect. I don't have my degree. But more importantly... Is Andrea right? Does the fact that the national anthem, and because it had the word slave in it, make it devoid of value to our nation? Is the fact that the pledge was a large marketing ploy to sell more flags mean that it can't metamorphose into something great and more profound than its original endeavor? Is the flag forever stuck with monikers of being only for one race of people and no other? I say that argument is without merit. Now, this is a touchy subject. We all know this. And this is something that we've tried to encroach upon before. And being a touchy subject, we sometimes don't want to go ahead and embrace the chaos that it can create inside of us. But I'm going to bring it up anyway. And this is something that's not talked about. White slavery. Now, before people flip out, we need to address that white slavery happened. Can we at least admit that? It wasn't on the scale of black slavery. And in honesty, black slavery wasn't on the level of the Holocaust. And the Holocaust fails to eclipse Native American deaths. Do you see the conundrum? The ever-spiraling decline of trivializing events in history based on impact and volume. Is that really what we're down to is some statistical numbers? Is that what black youth being shot in Chicago at a rapid rate is only important because it's a percentage? No. We're trivializing the importance. We need to see the delineation between the two that brings us together, white slavery and black slavery. And how is that possible? White Americans, on the other hand, gladly gave up all claims on it years ago. As if shuffling off a bad family debt. But could admitting the white captive into the story of slavery play any role in changing that? Blacks might have to give up that exclusivity of their suffering but they would see farther into the heart and mind of the slave empire, witnessing, for example, how American elites so often turned poor blacks and whites against each other. Whites could emerge from their numbed boredom, their conviction that the only response to the subject is guilt or secret resentment, and encounter slavery more as the complex historical phenomenon it was, and less like the collective crime it has come to be characterized as. But these comments have been labeled taboo, and a revisionist point of view. So what happens? The conversation stops, and leftists want to instill their own revisionist ideology instead. Ironically, if anything, the existence of white slavery highlights the deep connection between blacks and whites, as does the relationship between Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, as does the story of African-American Civil War patriots, as does the story of blacks and whites coming to Christianity together in the First Great Awakening. The white captive reminds us how wild and grotesque and various the world of slavery was and how every American has inherited 
It's crazy genes. Like them or not, they belong to all of us. That's a pretty good encapsulation of the American experiment, which began as the only democracy in the world and then got better and better over time. There's no harm in acknowledging everything we got wrong along the way, but there are some who seem oblivious to all the stuff we got right. The flag reflects everyone because the flag is a symbol. It is a symbol of the times and the direction of the wind. And all the wind forms and shapes the flag to whatever it desires. She moves and fervors through the strongest of gales or softest of breezes. With an unrelenting grasp on her threads and fabric, never to rip, only to fray. This is the symmetry and direct reflection of America and our Constitution. Our forefathers were brilliant but flawed men, just as we all are. They should be revered for their foresight into the unknown by allowing the steadfast resolve of the Constitution to be changed and altered. A living, breathing document that could mold and shape itself onto a better form, depending upon the winds of change. We are and never will be perfect, and I am sure many nationalities that come here understand that the flag only represents its citizens, and yet they come. They come for a promise. They come for the opportunity to have the winds of freedom push them into prosperity. Do they uh, reflect on the flag, the pledge, the anthem that was never written for them? No, they understand that all men are created equal under God, not just Americans, but human beings. The difference is there is a horrible scar that rips this story to shreds if we let it or no, if we fail to acknowledge it. African Americans were never asked if they wanted to come here. They were ripped from their homeland, stripped of their dignity, lashed out of being from strong and resilient to obedient and impotent. We have committed travesties that should never be forgotten, as I will never forget my great-grandmother as she fled the Holocaust, as other relatives chased her with the SS logo emblazoned on their uniforms. I will never forget the Christians thrown into pits with lions for sport. I will never forget the bond, the bomb-riddled lands overseas. I do not have the power to forget. I am incapable of such a feat. But even more importantly, there is something much more difficult than compartmentalizing tragedy. The most difficult is the ability to forgive. We have to ask our fellow Americans to forgive our atrocities, to trust that we will continue to make amends in any way that we can. We need to acknowledge and have the battle of thought so we can find peace in our hearts. We can stricken every law. We can burn every flag. We can rewrite every book. But in the end, we will need to learn how to forgive if we are to move forward or forever to continue to look backward with malice in our hearts. Oh, say, can you please sit down and shut up? Is the national anthem racist? Had you asked this question just a few years ago to fans at a baseball, basketball, football, or even hockey game, they would have assumed you had imbibed one too many beers. Today, thanks to an assault by the progressive left on the Star-Spangled Banner and its composer, Francis Scott Key, you might get a different reaction. For example, here's what Jason Johnson, a journalist and professor at Morgan State University and popular cable news commentator, wrote about the anthem. It is one of the most racist pro-slavery anti-black songs in American lexicon. Those are a lot of big words for somebody who has no idea what they speak. But is Johnson serious? He actually is. And sadly, a lot of progressives agree with him. But why? 
To answer the question, we need a brief history of the song. Key wrote the Star Spangled Banner after witnessing the American victory at the Battle of Fort McHenry during the War of 1812, a rare bright spot in young country's second conflict with Britain, a conflict in which Americans mostly got their asses kicked. Critics like Johnson focus on the third stanza, in which Key mocks the retreating British soldiers. Before describing those lyrics, I need to make this point. The third stanza is virtually unknown, like I said earlier in the last segment. Almost no American has ever sung, read, or heard it, and I challenge you to go read it. It's pretty freaking boring. But even so, it's not nearly as offensive as it's made out to be unless you are looking to be offended. Here's what Key wrote. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. How formulaic. The claim of racism focuses, of course, on Key's use of the word slave, which, so the argument goes, refers to the British Second Corps of Colonial Marines. This unit was composed of former American slaves who had been encouraged to escape bondage and fight alongside British troops. According to this line of thinking, the key to the slave-owning was a prominent attorney, and he was terribly upset by the idea of freed blacks fighting against their former masters and was so gratified by their defeat that he inserted this line into the poem. Like many Americans living in the early 19th century, Key's record on race was mixed. On the other hand, he owned slaves himself. On the other, he offered free legal representation to slaves, petitioning the Maryland court for their freedom. Does that not earn some sort of kindness? Or possibly that maybe he spoke out of both sides of his mouth, like most people do? That he's human after all? In 1835, he served as a prosecutor in a case in Washington, D.C. of an enslaved black man, Arthur Bowen, who was accused of threatening his white female owner. But when a riot ensued over the incident, Key bravely stood between Bowen and the lynch mob bent on killing him. Does that change things? With respect to the anthem, there is no direct evidence that Key was referring to the Second Corps of Colonial Marines and that he even knew that that the unit existed or cared if it did. It should further be noted that this unit was not even present at the battle, so Key could not have seen them fleeing the field. Why then did Key use the word slave? None of us will ever know for sure, of course, but it's important to note that Key was not the first person to use the expression hirelings and slaves. It was a common rhetorical device of the time used on both sides of the Atlantic. I sometimes do it in my show. I will hear something out of context and I will use it and apply new meaning to it. And then sometimes people get upset. Everyone, remember, the words you use were learnt from something else. Very seldom do we have original thought. It's very hard with a limited English language not to tread upon someone else's ideas. And we can change it in different ways, and we can alter it and mix up words, but ultimately, most thoughts that we have aren't very original, and when they are, they go far. But it could be that he just heard this and used it because it rhymed. You find it in newspaper articles and English language literature as well, before the onset of the war. It was an all-purpose insult that could be used to refer to enemy troops, foreign leaders, corrupt politicians, or anyone else in need of put-down. For example, 1795, long before the Second Corps of the Colonial Marines ever existed, a dispatch from Baltimore condemned the hireling slaves of the English King George III. And remember, slave was a convenient rhyme for grave. said he may have just been using it, because it was simple to rhyme. Or maybe because the word mercenary wasn't in the English language and its derivative is from France. And no self-respecting colonial 
or replant or Englishman would ever use a French word in a poem. Before the recent ruckus, no one who sang the national anthem thought it sent a racial message ever. We stood for it on 9-11, we did it every day in class, and nobody had a problem. If anything, people believed that the anthem promoted unity, and it was intended to do that. Besides, as previously noted, hardly any Americans even knew the third stanza exist. During World War II, GIs trying to uncover German infiltrators would ask suspected spies to sing the second or third or fourth verse of the Star-Spangled Banner. If they didn't know the words, they were assumed to be genuine Americans. And if they tried to make something up, they knew they were Germans. Those who declare the flag and the national anthem to be racist would do well to remember that Martin Luther King and his supporters carried the American flag during their famous Selma march. When they reached the State House in Montgomery, Alabama, guess what song they sang? That's right, Star Spangled Banner. We can apply any connotation we want to anything. We've done it to the Bible, we've done it to history, we've done it to our own words. But just because you say something doesn't make it true. And just because you say it repeatedly doesn't make it more true. The United States has a lot of ambiguity in it, and the Constitution especially. But there is no ambiguity with the flag. There is no ambiguity with the pledge. And there certainly is an ambiguity with who we are as American people. Nobody is excluded. And I'll tell you why in the next segment. You're racist. I know you are. But what am I? I have been going over this ad nauseum for days now. So I am putting this to rest. I don't blame Democrats for these things in the past because it is trivial and a useless argument. But I am tired of being blamed. I'm tired of being, bl- tired of being blamed for being a Republican. So let's go down this long and dirty trail. This is a short history of Democrats, Republicans, and racism. And these are following all a few basic historical facts that every American should know, but might find interesting. All I ask is you do this. Don't use what you think you know. Go and research. Research what I write. And don't look for the first Blaze or Slate article or Politico or Huffington Post. Actually read something about the time period. And then you come back and let me know how I do. The Republican Party was founded primarily to oppose slavery and Republicans eventually abolished slavery. The Democratic Party fought them and tried to maintain and expand slavery. The 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery, passed in 1865 with 100% Republican support, but only 23 Democrat support in Congress. And that's not to a point blame. Once again, it's to deflect what's being put upon Republicans. Why is this indisputable fact so rarely mentioned? PBS documentaries about slavery and the Civil War barely mention it, for example— One can certainly argue that the parties have changed in 150 years. More about that below. But that does not change the historical fact that it was most assuredly Democrats who supported slavery and the Republicans who opposed it. And that indisputable fact should not be airbrushed out for fear that it will tarnish the modern Democratic Party. In fact, for the last 60 years, you've been labeling Republicans about it. And maybe it's time that Democrats actually simply acknowledge it. And maybe that's how we begin to heal. Had the positions of the parties been the opposite and the Democrats had fought the Republicans to end slavery, the historical party roles would no doubt be repeated incessantly in these documentaries. Funny how that works. Why aren't they talking about it? Why is it never mentioned? Because it's not true. 
During the Civil War era, the radical Republicans were given that name because they wanted to not only end slavery, but also to endow the freed slaves with full citizenship, equality, and rights. Yes, that was radical at the time. And hence why? Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, along with several others. It wasn't just Lincoln that was shot that day. That's a whole other story. Lincoln's vice president, Andrew Johnson, was strongly pro-union, but also pro-slavery. He was a Democrat who had been chosen by Lincoln as a compromise running mate to attract Democrats. After Lincoln was assassinated, Johnson thwarted Republican efforts in Congress to recognize the civil rights of the freed slaves, and Southern Democrats continued to thwart any such efforts for close to a century. The 14th Amendment, giving full citizenship to freed slaves, passed in 1868 with 94% Republican support and 0% Democratic support in Congress. The 15th Amendment, giving freed slaves the right to vote, passed in 1870 with 100% Republican support and 0% Democratic support in Congress. Regardless of what has happened since then, shouldn't we be grateful to Republicans for these amendments to the Constitution? Just a little. And shouldn't we remember which party stood for freedom and which party fiercely opposed it? And does that reflect on Democrats today? No. What does is the modern-day slave plantations called the inner cities, putting people on welfare and food stamps, and also not supporting family and the unit of family. The Ku Klux Klan was originally and primarily an arm of the Southern Democratic Party. Its mission was to terrorize freed slaves and using that horrible N-word. Those are their words. Republicans sympathized with African Americans and maybe not treated them the way they deserved to be treated during that time because most of them were slave owners at one point as well, including our founding fathers, including most of the world. But why is this fact conveniently omitted in so many popular histories and depictions of the KKK, including those PBS documentaries we talked about? Had the KKK been founded by Republicans, the fact, that fact would no doubt be repeated constantly on shows. Do you hear it on CNN? Do you hear it on The View? Has anyone ever heard it? We assume they founded the KKK because that's what we were told. But has anyone ever heard any major news outlet say that Republicans founded the KKK? Why wouldn't they? Why don't we use our minds? Why don't we ask ourselves the question that not disproves or proves, but has that burden put upon others? More questions lead to better answers. Less questions create ambiguity and ignorance. In the 1950s, President Eisenhower was a Republican. He integrated the U.S. military and promoted civil rights for minorities. Eisenhower pushed through the Civil Rights Act of 1957. One of Eisenhower's primary political opponents on civil rights prior to 1957 was none other than, you guessed it, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who wound up pushing it through. He was the Senate majority, majority leader at the time, and LBJ had voted the straight segregationist line until he changed his position and supported the 1957 act. And remember, it was the Kennedys before they were tragically removed from office. The historic Civil Rights Act of 1964 was supported by a higher percentage of Republicans and Democrats in both houses of Congress. In the House, 80% of the Republicans and 63% of the Democrats voted in favor. And if you think that I am a dishonest human being, I just supported Democrats because a lot of Republicans say nobody voted for it, and that's a lie. Nobody in the South voted for it, which was most assuredly ran by Democrats at the time. But the Delta had improved. 
In the Senate, 82% of the Republicans and 69% of the Democrats voted for it. But still, a mass majority of Republicans voted for it, while a certain majority, minority, voted against it that were Democrat. And contrary to popular misconception, the parties never switched on racism. I am so sick of hearing this. This is the biggest lie sold, where they don't say we founded the KKK and everything else. They say the parties switched. One night, we miraculously switched. The Democrats just switched from overt racism, racism to a subversive strategy of getting blacks as dependent as possible on government to secure their votes. But at the same time, they began a cynical smear campaign to label anyone who opposes their devious strategy as greedy racists. Following the epic civil rights struggles of the 1960s, the South began a major demographic shift from Democrat to Republican dominance. Many believe that this shift was motivated by racism. While it is certainly true that many Southern racists abandoned the Democratic Party over its new support for racial equality and integration, the notion that they would flock to the Republican Party, which was a century ahead of the Democrats on those issues, makes no sense whatsoever. Yet virtually every liberal, when pressed on the matter, will inevitably claim that the party switched, and most racist Democrats became Republicans. In their minds, this historical jujitsu maneuver apparently transfers all past signs of the Democrats, slavery, the KKK, Jim Crow laws, three-fifths compromise, onto Republicans, and all the past virtues of Republicans, ending slavery, the biggest, onto the Democrats. What a quite feat that is. It is true that Barry Goldwater's opposition to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 probably attracted some racist Democrats to the Republican Party. And we know that Trump supporters, the ultra-right wing, there is a very large racist element, but they are not Republicans any more than Antifa or Democrats. Can we please stop? But with Goldwater... He wasn't racist, at least not an overt racist like so many Southern Democrats at the time, such as George Wallace and Bull Connor. He publicly professed racial equality, and his opposition to the 1964 Act was based on principled grounds of states' rights. In any case, his libertarian views were out of step with the mainstream, and he lost the 1964 presidential, presidential election to LBJ in a landslide. But Goldwater's opposition to the 1964 Civil Rights Act provided liberals an opening to tar the Republican Party as racist, and they have tenaciously repeated that label so often over the years that it is now the conventional wisdom among liberals. But it is really nothing more than an unsubstantiated myth, a convenient political lie. If the Republican Party was any more racist than the Democratic Party, even in 1964, why did a high percentage of Republicans and Democrats in both houses of the Congress vote for the 1964 Civil Rights Act? The idea that Goldwater's vote on the 1964 Civil Rights Act trumps a century of history of the Republican Party is ridiculous and asinine, to say the least. That would be like saying that all Democrats hate the police just because Obama demonstrated that for eight years by never backing them publicly. Every political party has its racist, but the notion that Republicans are more racist than Democrats or any other party is based on nothing more than a constant drumbeat of unsubstantiated innuendo and assertions by leftists, constantly echoed by the liberal media. It is a classic example of a big lie that becomes true simply by virtue of being repeated so many times. Yes, Gable said this. Yes, I had somebody that challenged me on this. So did Lenin. And actually, it was actually said in 1782 by somebody else who I can't even remember. The point is, is a big lie is a big lie. Say it so often that it becomes true. 
But a more likely explanation for the long-term shift from Democratic to Republican dominance in the South was the perception, fair or not, that the Democratic Party had rejected traditional Christian religious values and embraced radical secularism. That includes its hardline support for abortion, its rejection of prayer in public schools, its promotion of the gay agenda, and many other issues. Right or wrong, whether I agree with them or not, doesn't matter. That is the perception. In the 1960s, the Democratic Party changed its strategy for dealing with African Americans. Thanks to early Republican initiatives on civil rights, blatant racial oppression was no longer a viable political option, whereas before that time, Southern Democrats had overtly and proudly segregated and terrorized blacks. The National Democratic Party decided instead to be more subtle and get them as de- dependent on government as possible. As LBJ so elegantly put it in a famous movement of candor that was recorded for posterity, Quote, I'll have those N-words voting Democrat for the next 200 years. At the same time, the Democrats started a persistent campaign of lies and innuendo, falsely equating any opposition to their welfare state with racism. From a purely cynical political perspective, the Democratic strategy of black dependence has been extremely effective. LBJ knew exactly what he was doing. African Americans routinely vote well over 90% Democrat for fear that Republicans will cut their governmental benefits and welfare programs. And what is the result? Before LBJ's Great Society welfare programs, the black illegitimacy rate was as low as 23%, but now it has more than tripled to 72%. Most major American city governments have been run by liberal Democrats for decades, and most of those cities have large black sections that are essentially dysfunctional anarchies. Cities like Detroit are overrun by gangs and drug dealers with burned out homes on every block in some areas. The land values are so low due to crime, blight, and lack of economic opportunity that condemned homes are not even worth rebuilding. Who wants to build a home in an urban war zone? Yet they keep electing liberal Democrats and blaming racist Republicans for their problems. Washington, D.C. is another city that has been dominated by liberal Democrats for decades. It spends more per capita on students than almost any other city in the world, yet it has some of the worst academic achievement anywhere and is drug-infested hellhole. Three three times more people in Washington, D.C. have died by gang violence and shootings than COVID. How's that for a narrative? Barack Obama would not dream of sending his own kids to D.C. public schools, and of course most presidents wouldn't. But he assures us, and did assure us, that these schools are good enough for everyone else. In fact, Obama was instrumental in killing a popular and effective school voucher program in D.C., effectively killing hopes for many poor black families trapped in those dysfunctional public schools. His allegiance to the teachers' union apparently trumps his concern for poor black families. And we're seeing it again as the unions are forcing these liberal cities, like my home, in Ashburn and Round Hill, Virginia, to force my children to wear masks again in the fall. And the CDC says it's not necessary. I thought we should listen to the CDC. I thought they knew everything. Dr. Fucky also said they don't need to wear it. And now they do. The unions have unsurpassed power, and they are run by Democrats. A strong argument could also be made that the Democratic support for perpetual affirmative action is racist. It is. After all, the antithesis of Martin Luther King's dream of a colorblind society, not only is it reverse racism, but is based on the premise that African Americans are incapable of competing in the free market on a level playing field. In other words, it is based on the notion of white supremacy, albeit benevolent white supremacy rather than the openly hostile white supremacy of the pre-1960s Democratic Party. The next time someone claims that Republicans are racist and Democrats are not, 
Don't fall for it. Most assuredly, there are racist Democrats and there are racist Republicans, and there are racist people everywhere. But it doesn't mean it's systemic. It is individual cases of ignorance and stupidity from a belief of the yesteryear and perpetuated by the Democratic Party. Now, we're not hanging Democrats with this. We're not saying that they're all evil, but they do have to take responsibility for the modern-day slave plantations that I have been screaming about for the last year. Democratic policy is infectious. A good government, why do you think we change out the party of the president every eight years to four years? Very seldom is it back-to-back to back. Very seldom do you have a Democratic office for four terms. The American public understands that things like infrastructure, maybe paying a little more tax, maybe spending a little bit less on defense, spending a little bit more on social policies, helps everyone at home. And then switching that and lowering taxes, investing in our defense, our national security, and trade is more important under Republicans. And a good mix of both is important. Why do you think that the American people ensure that there are checks and, balance, checks and balances in our government and all three branches and very rarely give a mandate to any president, even though they did it with Donald Trump? Folks, you're being lied to. And I'm not saying that Republican shit doesn't stink because it most assuredly does. But we are sick and tired of being labeled as racists. I know many successful black people. And I will tell you, I see them as peers and equals, and they have risen to heights that I will never achieve. The myth, the lie that the American dream is colorblind or is not colorblind and only focus on color is a fallacy. If you come to the United States and you work hard and you put everything you can into it, you are not guaranteed success, but you are guaranteed the right to try. We need, once again, to stop focusing on the things we can't change and focusing on the most important thing that we can, which is forgiveness. It will be the hardest challenge we have ever faced as Americans. It'll be more influential and changing to the world if we do over World War II, over the Declaration of Independence, over penicillin, or the creation of a great flag that was designed as a marketing ploy. We have a responsibility to rise up together, to challenge each other's thinking so we can change what's in our hearts. And until we stop living in the past, there will be no option to do that, only more of the same which divides us. Let's hope that this message will get to a few people and we can change hearts and minds for the betterment of America. Folks, that's it for tonight. Thank you for stopping by. Tomorrow, 189, I most assuredly will be on again. It's good to see you. It's good for you to be here, and thank you. Now we can get to Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Press 122 veterans a day commit suicide. It is way too many. They need your help. Veterans suffer from traumatic brain injury, PTS, anxiety, and depression. They have seen horrific things. If they won't talk to you, reach out to me. I will make that phone call with you and help. Veterans can sometime, sometimes speak easier to other veterans. If that doesn't work, they can go to my website at donutfriendly.com, click on the VCL link, and be connected to a VCL operator. If you are not a veteran, you can also make that call, and they will not turn you away. It is a fantastic organization. Folks, thank you so much for being here tonight. Please be kind to each other. Please stop by. Take a listen, if you would not mind, to 
uh, any of the older episodes, throw me a like, share, and follow, and subscribe right here. I would appreciate it. Have a wonderful night. God bless America, and thank you for stopping by.